Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me today to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. While you're turning there, I want to draw your attention to the Independence Campus Pledge Card. Uh, if you're visiting, uh, you can tune me out for a few moments. Uh, but if you're part of the Vision Church family, I want to challenge you, take a moment. Prayerfully consider what God would have you to give above and beyond your normal giving to the church. Um, Our goal is to raise $1 million by May 2023 to transform this building uh, so that lives will be transformed in it. Back in June, we closed on 6070 East Independence Boulevard, Charlotte, North Carolina. Come on, somebody. It's a big deal. It really is. 43,000 square feet, hundreds of parking spaces. It really is a miracle. Uh, And there's a a whole story about it. We'll tell you one day. Um, But anyway, next Sunday morning, we're gonna take a special offering for the Independence Campus next Sunday, all right? And we're gonna do something a little bit uh, unusual here. We're actually gonna take a physical offering next Sunday. So we're gonna invite you to bring either a pledge card or a contribution. And we're gonna lay it at the altar as a sign of an act of worship and sacrificial giving to God. Many years ago, well, actually not that many years ago, maybe a couple years ago, um, when we were mobile, setting up, tearing down in Metro School's gym, many of you gave sacrificially above and beyond so that we could be in this space today. And many of you are brand new. You don't even remember the gym and setting up and tearing down and glory to God for you to not remember that. (laughs) So, but this is our opportunity to pay it forward. Okay, and listen, if you feel any type of way about giving like, oh, I don't wanna do it, then just keep it. It's okay, we'll still love you, all right? But the Lord wants a cheerful giver. And it's not I have to, it's I get to. And this is part of the Christian faith. It is not that God needs your money, but He wants your heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And often the last part of a person to get converted is their checkbook. So anyway, that's free. You're welcome. Um, Now, would you like to see what the new building is going to look like? Because... This is the before, this is the before picture. And I've got some renderings this morning. We're gonna go ahead and show you uh, the future home of Vision Church. There it is. So yeah, it's exciting, definitely exciting. Uh, One of my favorite features about it is uh, the giant cross right in the middle. Uh, You know, a (laughs) a lot of like, you know, hip contemporary churches today. I don't, I don't think we're hip, but anyway, a lot of them that are trying to be contemporary, they don't have a cross anywhere. And, you know, I'm not trying to knock on them, but like, uh, isn't that what it's all about is the cross, right? So we want to lift the cross up high over our city on East Independence Boulevard. It's going to be powerful. I think it's a beautiful building. What we're doing is we're trying to send a message before anybody ever hears a sermon, before they ever hear our worship, they're going to first see this message. And hopefully what this conveys is that God is alive. 
He's active and He's working in the city of Charlotte. We got a few more renderings that we'll show you just really quickly, just from some different angles. There it is. And we got one more for you. There it is. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. I'm also gonna show you a floor plan really quickly because in the floor plan, yeah, so that's it. So it's 43,000 square feet. And basically there's a wall that will be built right in the middle of the building and everything to my left, your right, will be phase one. So phase one is what we're raising the $1 million for. That covers the exterior of the building, the parking lot, our Vision Kids classrooms, our offices, volunteer headquarters, and large restrooms. By the way, we'll be able to serve 210 Vision Kids every service. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, one more exciting detail about this, the architects and contractors are telling us that this will, phase one will be finished somewhere early summer, 2023, which it can't be fast enough. But what we're gonna do during phase one, this is the main lobby that connects to the front of the building right here. And we're gonna drop 450 seats in that lobby. And we're gonna open it as a second location during phase one. And just to make, just so you can feel that a little bit more and have more context, that lobby is about as wide as this room is, except it's just many times deeper. Yeah, so that's exciting. And then um, immediately after phase one is completed, we plan to begin immediately on phase two, which will consist of a very large sanctuary, roughly 1,600, 700 seats, something like that. Um, you know, that's a, it's a blessing. It really is. And because it's a blessing for me because that means I don't have to do four services. All right. So if anybody's excited, I'm excited. All right. But hey, it's a good thing that we have to do four services. It's a good, so don't get me wrong. But I've heard some people say, well, you know, I like, I like the church small. You know, I like to know everybody. Well, you don't know everybody now. And <laughs> that was funny. And you know it was. You don't know everybody at 830, trust me. I don't know them all either, so you don't. So, uh, but also, you know, when you look at the New Testament church, God's plan for the church is that it would be alive, that it would thrive, that it would reach into its community and turn the cities upside down. The New Testament church in Jerusalem went from 120 to 3,000 in one day. Why? Because God loves the world. And he, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son for that reason. And so, it's exciting to be a part of the work of God here in the city of Charlotte. Y'all excited? It's gonna be good. All right, Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse 12. If you're paying attention and you're real astute, you recognize that we covered chapter four last week and we probably should be on to chapters five and six. You would be right. But today what we're gonna do is we're gonna cover five, six, and back to four because there were a couple verses in chapter four that were just so good. There's no way I could preach a Hebrew series and not cover these verses, all right? Uh, we made it through in both services this morning, so we'll do it again. 
Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse 12, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between the soul and the spirit, between the joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one to whom we are accountable. So then just as we have a great high priest who entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness for he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Father, we love you so much. We're so thankful for your word. We praise you for the book of Hebrews. I, praise, I pray that today that you would touch every person in this room. You would be strong in my weakness because I need you. And may your message, may it touch the hearts of every person. May I be hidden behind the message of the cross. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. So um, I wanna give you a little context into the book of Hebrews again. And if you're visiting for the first time, welcome. You can get caught up at your convenience at visionchurch.com or on our YouTube channel. We're also live streaming this morning. So if you could make some noise for everybody watching on the live stream. Yeah, welcome. Please leave a comment. Let us know where you're watching from. Also hit the share button because you never know who might be impacted by the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's something new that we're doing. We're streaming every 10 o'clock and 1130 now. Uh, the context of Hebrews is uh, this is written to uh, Messianic Jews, people of a Hebrew descent, but they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that the book of Hebrews is written is because many of them are succumbing to the pressures of society and their families are outcasting them. They're being cut out of the fabric of society. You have to realize that 2000 years ago, it was not a celebrated thing for you to be a Christian, let alone a messianic Jew, because if you believed in Christ and your Jewish lineage, that's where you were raised, um, they looked at it as a false religion. They looked at it as the occult, something crazy. And so many of these believers who started passionately serving Jesus were now falling by the wayside. They were now turning back to Judaism, rejecting Christ as the Messiah. And so the author of Hebrews, who is unknown, writes 13 magnificent chapters, like a lawyer would build a case right back to those Messianic Jews, drawing them back to Christ and warning them, don't drift from the truth. If you deny Christ, what other gospel will save you? Powerful, powerful message, okay? So back to verse, chapter four, verses 12 through 13. The first point today is the word of God is alive and active. If you would look at your neighbor with some attitude and tell them the word is alive and active. It doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible. If you've read a verse a hundred times, you can come to it the hundred and first time and it speak and give new life to you. There's no other book on planet earth that is living and active like the scripture. There's nothing else that is so transformative that it's life giving every time you read it. 
One of my favorite things about this scripture is no matter how much revelation you've drawn from it, it's like, a, it's like an onion. You peel it back layer after layer and with each layer, it becomes more potent, more powerful and leaves you ugly crying. So that was my two cents on that. All right. So, but the truth is like even on a normal Sunday when we're preaching four times, there will, it's routine that each sermon comes out a little bit different because in the moment, as I'm looking at the text, the Lord speaks and nudges me to do, say different things to different people. His word is alive. It is active. It's not like some textbook that you read one time and now you've got it. No, you got to continue to approach it. It's your daily bread, your, the living word that we sustain our life by. In fact, just a really quick side note. You remember in the Exodus, in the wilderness, God gave them manna every morning and he warned them, don't take more manna today than you're going to need just to sustain this day. Do you remember? But the Israelites being the Israelites didn't listen and they hoarded up more than they needed. And overnight it became uh, worm infested and contaminated and no good. And this was a spiritual picture that the Lord was saying to them, I don't want you to live today on yesterday's bread. I don't want you to live today. I don't want your spiritual life to be sustained today off what I spoke to you years ago. I'm a living God. My word is living. I want you to seek me every day, every morning. I want you to draw near to me every day. Don't take more than you need for today because I'm going to speak to you. Some people credit pastors for on-time sermons. And man, pastor, that sermon was right up in my driveway. That was what I needed to hear today. Um, but really, have you ever heard a sermon that it felt like God was just speaking directly to you? Well, the truth is the power is not in the preacher. The power is in the word of the living God. And see, his word is alive and active. And that's why it speaks prophetically, instantly, right into your situation, because it's the living word. And by the way, scripture tells us in no less simple terms that when you approach God's word, God meets with you. When you open God's word, the Holy Spirit ministers to you. It is an encounter with the divine every time we open and break the bread of life. That's how powerful the scripture is. We don't simply read the Bible. The Bible reads us. Look at your neighbor with some attitude. Tell them the Bible reads you. The Bible exposes us for who we really are. It reveals the, two, the true motives of the heart, the true condition of our spirit. The word of God is like a mirror. It reveals to us. And not only do we read it, it reads us. And often the picture that the scripture paints of us is one that's not too glamorous, right? It's not one of those selfie shots that you want to post. And what the scripture tells us is that we are sinful and that we are broken and not truly righteous and not truly seeking after God. But while we were dead in our sin and lost in our trespasses, he was rich in mercy towards us. And he loved us so much. He gave his son for us. The scripture doesn't just expose us to condemn us. It exposes us to transform us. Did you read the, the words of the, the author of Hebrews? He said, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides asunder the soul and the spirit, the joint from the marrow. In other words, it nothing can be hidden from God. The scripture, when you open it, it reveals you for who you really are. And you may be able to lull yourself to sleep in a false sense of security, but the scripture will show you who you really are. 
And it does so not to condemn you, but to transform you. You have to understand until you're humble, until you're repentant, until you see your true condition as it is, you can never really move forward and be born again. You know, one of the greatest mistakes we make today in 2022 as we try to share the gospel is we tell them that Jesus died for them, but we never start with why they need Jesus in the first place. You know, but the scripture spends a lot of time talking about sin and, and death and the wages of sin it, the, because the scripture is building a case against us. The, you, didn't, you know, the, the commandments and the laws, they were not given to prove you righteous. They were given to prove you guilty. And when you realize you're guilty, then you turn to a savior, okay? And that's the purpose of the scripture. It's alive and active. Scripture does far more than just speak to our intellect. It is a spiritual book and it speaks to our spirit, every part of us, mind, soul, spirit. A few things about the word of God is that it brings healing. It brings deliverance. It cleanses us from sin. The Bible keeps us from sin and sin keeps us from the Bible. You know, um, spiritual hunger and physical hunger work on opposite paradigms. Physically, when you're hungry, the longer you go without food, the hungrier you get, right? The longer I preach at 1130, the hungrier you are, <laughs> right? I'm just trying to make it relatable, okay? But the truth is, the longer we go without spiritual sustenance, the longer we go without reading the word, the longer we go without church, the longer we go without Christian community, the less we desire it. But the more we read the word, the more we want to be in it. The more we praise him, the more we want to keep praising him. The more we're in the house of God, the more we want to be in the house of God. So it is the truth. So um, just, just remember that. Scripture not only points us to a wonderful counselor, it, it does provide us wonderful counsel. When you're not sure what direction to take in your life, the scripture gives you wisdom. Scripture allows us to bear fruit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. These things are realized in the life of a believer through our connection and reliance upon the word. The faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word is our source of strength. Scripture says that the entrance of your word brings light. His word brings a peace that surpasses all understanding to those who love it. And scripture is the ultimate authority for life on earth. Do you know what it means when your opinion is different from the Bible? You're wrong. You're exact. You're right, because you'd be wrong. <laughs> Does that make sense? People say, well, you know, I like this part of the Bible, but I don't like that. You know, I, I like this, what Jesus said, but I don't agree with this part. Well, the part you don't agree with, you're wrong. Are you like, oh, so offended? Well, uh, you're not God. And you've been alive, what, 20 years, 40 years, 30 years, 60 years? Okay, he's the transcendent eternal God from all creation. And his word is the blueprint of life and how it's meant to be. I think he, I, I'll go with him over your opinion every day. <laughs> I just love saying that. I just, I have fun with that. All right, moving on to verse 16. Scripture says, come boldly before the throne of grace in your time of need. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the book of Hebrews and really in all of the New Testament. 
And the reason that this is magnificent is because you, again, have to remember that it's written to a Hebrew audience. Their ancestors, this would have hit them in a way that it doesn't hit you and I today because the Hebrew audience would have thought back to their ancestors for millennia and all they had known about the throne of God it was speculation and wonder because for millennia they'd been kept on the outside in the outer court looking in. They had no idea what it was like to literally be in the presence of the most high God. But now, thanks to Jesus Christ and his precious death on the cross, we now are no longer on the outside looking in, but now, thanks to Jesus, we can come boldly into the throne of grace in our time of need. Because on the cross of Calvary, as Jesus gave his life for you and I, as he hung on the cross, darkness covered the earth. The earth began to shake and the veil in the temple that separated the throne room from the people was ripped top to bottom because only God could make a way where there was no way. Through Christ, we have access and a high price was paid for you and I to enter into the presence of the most high God. A high price was paid. We can come boldly. Boldly means that we enter with confidence into his presence, not with arrogance, but with confidence. Do you know that sin, one of its chief purposes in our life is to rob us of our confidence before God? The last time you sinned and you knew it was wrong, did you immediately feel like praising the Lord? Did you feel like running into the house of the Lord? No. Think back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They covered, them, they covered their nakedness and then they hid from the voice of the Lord. You see, sin robbed them of their confidence before their creator. It drives us further away from God, not closer to him. And that's still true today. Sin robs us of our confidence before God. But I've got good news for you. Really good news. Hebrews comes with good news. And that is that we come boldly before the throne of grace, not because of our confidence in ourselves. We can come boldly, not because we didn't sin in the last seven hours, no, we have confidence in Jesus Christ because his blood covers us. His death spoke for us. He made, my confidence is in Christ. I don't deserve to come into the presence of God. I don't deserve to stand in the throne room of heaven, but I come boldly because I have faith that what Jesus did for me is enough. And so now when I lift my prayer to heaven, I have confidence that you hear me because I stand on the authority of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do you, under, do you see that today? Do you feel that? So let your confidence not be in yourself or in your righteousness. Let your confidence be in Christ and his finished work. That word boldness not only means confidence, but it means persistence. We come persistently into his throne of grace without reservation, and we come freely into his presence. Scripture goes on to tell us in Hebrews that we serve a high priest who is omnipotent and compassionate. Omnipotent, all-powerful, and compassionate. Church, this is super important. 
We read that and sometimes we just take it for granted. We know that, that he's all powerful, but he's also compassionate. And we're like, oh yeah, that's like, we learned that in Sunday school. But here's the thing, I need you to pause and reflect on this for a moment. Because in life, I don't know about you, but many of the most powerful people I know are often the least compassionate. And sometimes the most compassionate people I know, in many cases, are the, less pa- the least powerful. It's not saying that that's always true, but in my experience, it tends to be the case. But what we see in Christ is we see a perfect balance. He is all powerful, all authority, all dominion is in his name. And he is equal in compassion and grace and mercy. This is good news because the God who will ultimately judge the living and the dead, the one who is righteous, who is holy, sovereign and majestic, is also full of mercy and grace and is your savior. Your judge is your savior. And it's because of him that we can come boldly into the throne of grace. It's really good news. It truly is. Chapter five, picking up in verse seven. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. He became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, there is much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen. (laughs) It's okay to laugh right there. Did you hear that? He's like, there's so much more I want to tell you, but you're spiritually dull and you don't listen. And y'all think my sermons are rough. Verse 12, But you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. But instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food for someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. The takeaway here from chapter five is it's time to grow up. Look at your neighbor with some attitude and tell him, it's time to grow up. The author of Hebrews is writing back to the Messianic Jews and he's saying to them, the reason that you are wavering in your faith and the reason you're going back to Judaism It's not because this is a weak salvation. It's not because this is a weak gospel. It's because you failed to grow in your faith. You were complacent. You were satisfied with the status quo, mundane, average, and you became apathetic. You became spiritually dull, and that ultimately led you to denial. He's saying that it's it's their fault that they're wavering because they did not grow. I need you to understand something today. Scripture teaches that there is no such thing as spiritually neutral. You are either growing or you're declining. You're either advancing or you're moving backwards spiritually. It's not, you're not in neutral. A, A warning that we can learn from the Hebrews is that 
complacency and allowing distance to grow between you and God's word, distance to exist between you and God's house, distance between you and the father is the first step to denial. Many people think, well, it's not a big deal if I don't go to church today. It's not a big deal if I don't go to connect group today. It's not a big deal if I don't pray today. Not a big deal if I don't read the word today. You know, God still loves me. Yes, he loves you. The question is, do you really love him as much as you say you love him? I'm not preaching legalism, but I am warning you that if you allow distance to exist in your life between your God, it is one step from denial. You remember Peter in the gospels? Remember Peter? Uh, at the Last Supper, he's like, I'll never deny you. Oh, not me. These other jokers may, but not me. Scripture says, almost immediately after, Peter followed Jesus from a distance. Moments later, he's warming himself by the enemy's fire. And the girl goes, hey, is that your savior? Oh, I, I, I've never seen him. Point being, distance ultimately leads to denial. And I'm gonna warn you, like the Hebrews, their faith was tested. Theirs was tested by their family and their friends trying to pull them back to Judaism. Well, your faith is going to be tested too. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. There are gonna be moments, circumstances, people that oppose you, that challenge your faith, and I wonder, will it stand? Will you have been a mature enough Christian that you know who you are, you know what you believe, and you know why you believe it? Or will you be like these Hebrew believers that though you'd been in the church, you hadn't been growing? You would not failed to grow, and if so, you'll be tossed back and forth with any different doctrine and theology, and people will talk you out of the gospel. May you grow in your faith because your eternity depends on it. The author of Hebrews wanted to tell them about the Arianic and order of Melchizedek priesthood, but he could not do that because that is the meat of God's word and they were still babies on the milk. There was more that God wanted to reveal to them, but they were not able to stomach it because they had no desire for more of God than what they already had. They, they thought they had enough. They had done enough. They didn't need anymore. They weren't hungry for him anymore. Let me just pause here for a moment and talk to you. You don't need to raise your hand, but just listen to what I'm about to say internally. Do you remember what it was like when you got saved? Do you remember? Think back to the goodness of your salvation. How excited were you? How passionate were you? I don't know about you, but when I was first saved, man, I was like, and I know you can't tell, but I'm, I was amped up, all right? It's hard for you to imagine. But I was like all in there, all right? But over time, time has a way of, dulling us and causing even the brightest of flame to dwindle. But I want to, I want to tell you something. I don't say that to condemn you today. I bring that up to actually encourage you and to show you that even if your passion and your fire is dwindled a little bit, you're actually not alone because even David, the Psalmist said, father, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Yes. If David needed 
his joy to be restored, who are you and I to think we won't? But here's, here's the lesson. Fires dwindle and they fade unless you keep investing, unless you keep fanning the flames, unless you keep throwing more fuel on the fire. And today, what fuels your spiritual growth is the word of God, the bread of life, the manna from heaven, the, the prayer, the intercession, the worship, the fellowship of the saints. That is what fuels your spiritual fire. And I'm gonna go one step further because all that is elementary to you. You should know that by now. Prayer, the word of God, worship, the fellowship of the saints. But there's one more key to investing in your spiritual life that is, that is absolutely paramount. And that is actually practicing what you preach, actually applying the scripture to your life. You, you start to, you start, hey, some, something dynamic will happen in your life when you stop talking about how much the world needs Jesus and you walk out those doors and start sharing him. Something dynamic happens in your life when you stop talking about how many people need to be discipled and grow up and you start discipling others. When you start applying it in your life, look out. You will become passionate and you will burn bright for him again. They had grown dull because they were complacent. And it wasn't that they were having a hard time hearing these concepts. It wasn't a hearing problem. It was a heart problem. They didn't want any more of him. But listen, the problem with the Hebrews was not the word of God. The problem was their heart. Yeah. You know, people, people say, well, you know, I didn't get much out of that sermon today. Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't like that preacher. He, you know, he's too loud and spits. And um, <laughs> I don't know. But here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And I'll be honest with you. I don't care if I stood up here and I spoke monotone and I read it for 40 minutes. It's not about entertaining you. There's sustenance here for you. It's not about the vessel that delivers it to you. No, no, no. The word is powerful. It's not, and, and here's the thing. It's not, it's not, oh, well, you know, there was something wrong with that. No, the, the problem's not with the scripture. The problem's with our heart. Every time. Isaiah 55, 11, my word cannot return void, but it will accomplish exactly what it was purposed to do. The problem wasn't the seed bearing fruit. The problem was that the soil had weeds and rocks and birds snatching the seed away. Do you remember the parable of the sower? The birds, the weeds and the stones, all that. The soil, by the way, represents your heart. The seed represents God's word. There was never a problem with the seed, never a problem with God's word, but the birds and the weeds represent the cares and the distractions of life, new girlfriend, new boyfriend, new job, new promotion, all these cares of life that somehow begin to choke out our spiritual growth. And the stones represent that negativity, cold, calloused, hard heart. You better be careful. The problem's not with the church, it's not with the songs, it's not with the worship. Problem is with the human heart and our distractions and our bitterness and our negativity. You better watch out because that will dull your spiritual growth like nothing else. And you'll blame it on me and blame it on the connect group leader, but, but just remember Hebrews when you get mad. 
I'm not saying that I'm perfect. And by the way, more preachers in the world today need to just preach the scripture. Preach the scripture. I'm so over trying to be impressed by preachers. You're not that impressive. It's not about you. And by the way, when you clap at this church, you are, don't ever get it to You're never clapping for me. I don't deserve your applause. I'm an unworthy servant just doing my job. But when you do respond, when you do praise, when you do shout, when you do, it's to him. The, the glory belongs to him. By the way, verse 12, it shows us that just because you've been a Christian a long time doesn't mean you're a mature Christian. The Hebrews were saying, well, we've been in, we've been, we've known this for a long time. And he says, well, yeah, and you're still a baby. People say, well, I've been to church for five years. I've been going to church for uh, 20 years. Okay. You still might be a baby. I'm, I'm serious. Well, I have 20 years experience. No, you don't. You got one year experience 20 times. You, cause, cause you never... Cause you never, cause you never got outside what was comfortable. You, you never served. You never used your gift. You never prayed for somebody that maybe you felt you never, you never stretched the boundaries. You just stayed in your, in your box for 20 years. You did the same thing over and over and you're a baby. It's true. Do you realize that the scripture says, I love, whoever the author of Hebrews is, I love him. When I get to heaven, I'm gonna hug him. They said to, they said to the Messianic Jews, they said, hey, by now, you should have been teaching others. You should have been teaching others. In other words, there is a divine expectation that every Christian becomes a teacher. Hold on. I know some of you right now are saying, well, what about that verse that says, not many of you should desire to be a teacher because with it comes greater responsibility. Thank you for bringing that up. That is saying not many of you should desire the office of a pastor or teacher where you're teaching corporately, publicly on behalf of God, dissecting, rightly dividing his word. Okay, because you will be held to a higher judgment. But it does, scripture certainly does command every one of us to be teaching new believers to follow Jesus. It's right there. By the way, the great commission, go and make disciples is not a suggestion. Sometimes we treat it like the great suggestion, but it's the great commission. I don't say any of this today to, to condemn you if you're not participating. I'm not condemning you. I just, hope that, I just hope that you just get so uncomfortable that you just start to trust God at his word. And you just start to, you just start to tell your neighbor, you, just, you, you start being nice to your neighbor. And then you invite them over to eat just to share Christ with it, just to share the love of God with them. You, I, I just wonder what it's gonna look like in your life when you just actually start to do this. It's gonna change your life. It's gonna change your life. All right, not gonna preach much longer on this part of chapter five, but I'm gonna leave you with these thoughts on verses 13 and 14. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rapid fire really quickly uh, how to know if you're a spiritual baby. By the way, my advice to you is don't make any facial expression. Just look straight ahead. Don't look to, don't look to your left or right. 
I'm just kidding. Let's relax. But if, you might be a spiritual baby if. Spiritual babies stay in the crib. They're not mobile. The first part of the Great Commission is to. So if you've never left the building, like to serve others, to love on others, to reach others. In fact, if you don't leave this building with the same faith that you have in it, you might be a spiritual baby. The next thing is babies are dependent on others to feed them milk. If you're relying on a 45 minute sermon once a week to sustain your spiritual life, you are spiritually emaciated and you're in trouble. And that's not God's design. Listen, the corporate preaching and teaching of the word is powerful. It's God ordained. It's from Christ. This is not my idea. This is his. But my job is to equip you, edify you, encourage you, and keep you theologically grounded. But it is not my job to feed you constantly. God wants every one of us to grow to a place where we can open that Bible and feed ourselves the word of God. Which means that we have to grow to a place where we can read it, study it, and apply it to our life for spiritual sustenance. If you can't read the word and feed yourself, you might be a baby. Babies can't handle the meat of the scripture. Babies also can't reproduce themselves. In other words, if you haven't led anybody to Jesus or you're not leading anybody to Jesus or not willing to lead anybody to Jesus or you don't know how to lead anybody to Jesus, you might be a spiritual baby. And when it gets quiet, that's when I know I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Again, I do not say any of this to condemn you, but I say it that it may edify you that it may encourage you to grow and develop and be the person that Christ has called you to be. We've got to be winning souls and making disciples. We have nothing to do but that. Nothing to do but that. Spiritual babies are sleepy. They spiritually slumber and they're cranky. I have one, about to have another one. They cranky. That means they're hateful and in the flesh. And yes, they're born sinners. That's fine. You, some people get mad at me when I say that babies are born sinners. They're like, oh, well, then just go serve in the nursery. We'll get you, we'll get you background check. And then you come back and let me know. Right? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Well, scripture, it does say that from the lineage of Adam, we've all been born with a sinful. That's why we must be born again. Okay, but the reason I bring this point up is because I can't tell you how many safe folk I know that are mean and rude. And I'm not talking about having a bad day. I'm talking about just, you just negative and nasty. I just have to tell you that that's not the spirit of Christ. And if that's how you act, why would anybody want to follow the Jesus that you serve? So I know you're saved and you got the gifts, but can you be nice? Can you shake somebody's hand? I'm preaching to you. <laughs> Chapter six, verse four. Now, what I'm about to read to you, 
uh, has caused a great deal of confusion, frustration, eternal insecurity, <laughs> okay? So this is one of the most controversial verses, not only in the book of Hebrews, but in all of the Bible. And uh, to be honest, a lot of places would just skip over it, but we're gonna dive right into it and we're gonna help you to see it. Hebrews chapter six, verse four, for it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and who turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to a public shame. Now, really quickly, I'm gonna confess something to you. When I was a young Christian, like baby Christian, I came across this verse and it was very scary to me because the way I perceived it, and by the way, if you have other versions like King James, New King James, or a different translation, it reads much, much harsher than that one, okay? And I remember as an early Christian coming across that verse and perceiving it to say that if once you're saved and baptized, if you keep sinning after you're saved, there's no longer any sacrifice that can cover your sin. Therefore, you cannot repent and you're lost. I'm not the only one who perceived it that way. Okay, in fact, there's many, many people who experience eternal insecurity over this verse right here because they're afraid that if they made a mistake since being a Christian, that there's no longer a sacrifice for them. Okay, let me just look you right in the eye and say something to you. That is not what this is saying. Thank, anybody thankful that that is not what this is saying? Okay, that is, I can tell you 100%, that's not what this is saying. Now, Remember the context of Hebrews. It's written to Messianic Jews who are wavering from their faith and they're turning away from the Messiah back to the Mosaic law. So the author is saying to them, if you turn back away from Christ, there is no other sacrifice that can atone for your sin. If you turn away from Jesus, there is no other savior. There is no other hope. If you turn from him, you will be lost eternally in your sin. This is not saying if you fall, you're lost. It says if you fall away, you will be lost. And there's a difference between falling away and falling. Okay, listen. Proverbs 24, 16 says this, a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. This is a scripture that says even the righteous fall sometimes. And if anybody claims to be without sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. So this verse does not mean well, if you sin, once you're a Christian, you're lost. Good luck. You know, Jesus died to save you one time. You know, his blood's good for one mess up. After that, it's over. No, when I fall as a Christian, I get back up and pursue him again. But there's a difference between falling 
and falling away from the faith altogether. Does this make sense? There's a difference between Peter who fell and denied, but then came back and Judas who denied and fell away. This is talking to the Judas, the one that's falling away. Does this make sense? Does that help you a little bit? Hopefully if you were struggling with that, you'll sleep a little better tonight in Jesus name. In closing Hebrews chapter six, verse 18. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary and Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is beautiful. Scripture is telling us that our hope is an anchor. Our hope is an anchor. This is the second time that the author of Hebrews references an anchor. You don't need an anchor for good days. You need an anchor for when the wind picks up and the sea begins to roar. You need an anchor for when life and its storms come your way. And the truth is, is that storms are coming. I wish I could tell you that they weren't, but they're coming. It's not if, it's when. Your faith will be tested. Your confidence will be shaken and it will be tested. What foundation did you build on? Christ or anything but him? Christ is our rock, he is our anchor. The anchor did a few things for the ancient merchants who navigated the seas. Number one, the anchor kept them from being shipwrecked. It kept them from being condemned. And so the anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ and his gospel, it keeps our soul from being wrecked, condemned, destroyed. He keeps us on a firm, stable path. The anchor in the ancient world would also maintain the progress that a ship had made. Without the anchor, the currents would pull it right back out to sea and all of its sailing would have been lost and evaporated in a moment. Jesus not only saves us, but he sustains us. He holds us. Nothing is lost, nothing is wasted in his presence. I wanna read to you a powerful quote from Charles Spurgeon regarding the anchor of our soul. Listen to this. Our anchor is like every other. When it is of any use, it's out of sight. When a man sees the anchor, it is doing nothing unless it happens to be some small stream or shallow water. But when the anchor is of use, it is gone. There it went overboard with a splash. Far down there among all the fish lies the iron. Hold fast, quite out of sight. Where is your hope, brother? Do you believe because you can see? Because that is not believing at all. It's powerful imagery. 
that blessed are those who believe who have not seen. We are trusting in placing our faith in a Jesus that we have not seen or touched or talked to audibly. Yet our anchor remains firm and constant. And the anchor holds when it's in an unseen place. If you're relying on evidence, you're relying on things that you can feel, touch, taste, and experience, you have yet to truly believe. And I promise you this, there is more light, there is more to life than what meets the eye. There is more to life than what you can see. That you can be certain. Hebrews 6 closes with this statement that Jesus, our high priest, is forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, that's the meat of God's word spoken to a Messianic Hebrew people. This would have meant a lot more to them than it may mean to you and I right now because to these Messianic Jews falling away, one of the great arguments for them going back to Judaism is where is Christ? Where is he in the Old Testament? If this was really the Messiah, then show us Jesus in the Old Testament. The the greatest argument against early Christianity was this is some new religion. It's unfounded. It has no, it's not cohesive with Judaism. That was one of their arguments that was pulling them away. And the author of Hebrews writes back and he says, let me remind you that Jesus is not just someone who appeared on the scene in Bethlehem. No, he is of the order of Melchizedek, which is found in Genesis chapter one. And the power of this is that Melchizedek was a king priest who had no record of birth, no record of death. He was transcendent. He's an Old Testament Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. And and the Hebrews always wondered, who is this Melchizedek? Who is this Melchizedek? And the, the author of Hebrews says, that high priest that's a king, that was Jesus. And it always has been, and it always will be. He is not just our king, but he is our priest, our savior. What they were doing is they were showing that audience Jesus in Genesis. This is the word of the living God, church. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.